Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves to, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, but they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. But his, by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the, of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the God. Thanks be to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here with us. We ask that you would give us ears to hear the things that you want us to hear. And Lord, that you would use Robin as he speaks, that you would touch his mouth and his mind, his whole being, that he would be able to speak your words to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Submission. Hardly the most attractive word in the English language. Now, depending on your experience, that word could trigger a fair number of negative emotions. Authority. Um, Another unattractive word for many people. Submission to authority. Put them together, it gets even worse. It's not really a phrase that brings you warm, fuzzy feelings, is it? Especially if you're, if you're from the West, 
with our tradition since at least the 18th century of individualism, or if you've experienced abuse at the hands of someone in authority over you, a boss, a parent, a team leader. Doing my own thing, bucking the trend, making my own decisions. These are, the, these are phrases that express the values of my home culture and the home cultures of many of us here. Submission to authority, not so much. But that's the core idea of this passage. It's bracketed by more general directions on how to live our lives. But the main idea is found in chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourself to every human authority. I'm not sure I like that. I mean, don't I get to choose which authorities I submit myself to? Doesn't look like it. It says, submit yourself to every human authority. It's pretty blunt. And this passage has been used to justify all kinds of things. Marilyn and I and some of us here are old enough to remember the impact of the shepherding movement on the church, um, some sections of the church. It taught that the best way for people to grow in Christ was for them to be in unquestioning submission to those in authority over them. Now, the intention was good to help people grow in Christ. Fortunately, the results were often bad. We know people who got married to each other simply because the person in authority over them said, you should marry each other. It usually didn't turn out very well. And this passage has been used, along with Romans 13, to convince German Christians to support Hitler because he was the human authority at the time. It's been used to support slavery, especially in the American South, because it explicitly tells slaves to submit to their masters. It's actually in the Slave Bible. The Slave Bible is a, or was, a version of the Bible edited especially for slaves. So all the material about justice and stuff like that was taken out, and only stuff that was deemed appropriate for slaves to read was left in. So it's not surprising then that they only ended up with 14 books rather than 66. And it's been used to justify husbands abusing their wives in Christian homes. And that's been defended by pastors and Christian leaders. I could give you names, but I won't. So if you're an abused wife or a slave or someone in an abusive work situation that you can't escape or a Christian that the state is persecuting or for that matter, a Christian whose government is doing awful things in your name, how in the world can this passage be seen as good news? Well, let's take some time to reflect on what Peter says, and perhaps more importantly, why he's saying it. First off, despite what looks like a long list of do's and don'ts in this passage, there are actually only two main commands. The first one is abstain from sinful desires. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, there's our theme phrase again, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, living such good lives among the pagans 
that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, sinful desires might actually be a bit too strong of a translation. Some other translations say worldly desires. And that might be a better translation because he's not necessarily talking about things that are evil in themselves. But what John calls one of his letters, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, seeking comfort, self-protection, self-gratification. These things can't be the focus of our lives, even if, even if they are the focus of the lives of those around us. For three, for three reasons. First of all, we're different. That's the point of calling us foreigners and aliens. We march to the beat of a different drum. One of our guests, we have lots of guests in our house, one of our guests was recently speaking about the uh, Turkish gençler, the, the youth that she has a lot of contact with, and how obsessed they are with what they're wearing, what brands are, they're, they're using, how they look on Instagram. For older people like me, um, it might be being obsessed with preparing for retirement, making sure you have enough money saved away so you actually can, you know, can live to however long the Lord allows you to live. In the middle, it's things like you know, um, paying off the mortgage in the house, if you're paying off a mortgage in the house. Working your way up the corporate ladder or the organizational ladder if you're a member of an organization. If you're into academics, maybe it's you know, getting your master's or your doctorate. None of those things are necessarily bad. Well, maybe being obsessed with Instagram is bad, but none of the rest of them are necessarily bad. But that's not where our primary focus should be. Because we don't share the same value system as those around us. Secondly, it sucks the life out of you, which is probably what Peter means when he says waging, talks about it waging war against your soul, because soul is a much bigger word in the Bible than it is in contemporary English. In modern English, when you talk about someone's soul, they tend, the, the idea tends to come up with some disembodied essence that is the real you. That's not the way the word is used in the Bible. That's Greek philosophy. In the Bible, your soul is more like the totality of your life. Physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, everything. And seeking all that stuff will suck the life out of you. And thirdly, and I think this most importantly for Peter, he says that we should be living such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And this is what underlies everything else he says in this passage. We should live different lives from our neighbors, not seeking after the things that they seek after, simply because it's, a better, it's better for us that way, right? We actually end up with a better quality of life. But we should also live good lives, and I just, okay, well, I'm there. We should also live good lives for the sake of the reputation of the gospel. That's his main point here. Clearly, people are accusing the Christians of all kinds of terrible things. A few weeks ago, um, when Mark was opening this uh, series, he quoted from Pliny uh, how he described Christianity. 
uh, in his letter, he described it as the contagion of a depraved and excessive superstition. Doesn't that make you feel all good and warm inside? You know, the disease of a corrupt and irrational belief. So what do our neighbors think about Christianity? I know Amel has often spoken to me about the preconceived ideas that our neighbors have about Christians, especially Christian women. And it's those kinds of misconceptions that Peter is encouraging his readers to undermine by living better lives than their neighbors. Not so they can have a superior attitude thinking that, about how much better they are than their neighbors, but so their neighbors would see their good deeds and glorify God. So Peter's primary concern here isn't with making sure everybody knows their place and stays in it. He's actually concerned with the spread of the gospel. So this passage isn't about submission as much as it is about mission. So if his concern is that Christians should live in ways that bring honor to the gospel, why is Peter so concerned about submission? Well, I think our friend Pliny can help us here again. In the same letter that Mark and I both quoted, where he's writing to Rome for instructions on how he should seek out, torture, and execute Christians. Think about that for a minute. One of the earliest non-Christian documents that we have that make any reference to Christians is a letter from a bureaucrat asking his boss how to find, torture, and execute them. And there are still people today writing similar letters to their political masters in various parts of the world. So, anyways, in his letter, Pliny says that some of the people who had previously said they were Christians had turned away from Christianity after, <coughs> excuse me, after he had issued a, dec- a decree. Now, what do you think that decree was about? Maybe, um, you know, certain religious gatherings and stuff like that, right? No. He'd issued a a decree against political associations. You see, apart from the fact, you know, despite the fact that the church was tiny, much like the church in Turkey today, which is like half of 1% of the population, early Christianity was seen as a threat to society, as it still is in many parts of this region. After all, Christians had been, Christians followed someone who had been executed as a subversive by the Roman government. And in Acts 17, there's a riot. And what the crowd shout in the riot? They shout, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. You can see why a Roman bureaucrat might have been a bit suspicious of anyone calling themselves a Christian, right? So maybe now we can see why Peter starts off his explanation of how to live good lives among the pagans with submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And just in case you think you heard him wrong, he gets explicit. 
whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. I can never read that last phrase without thinking about the Taliban's ministry of vice and virtue because they had a very similar slogan, you know, to enjoining virtue and forbidding evil. Um, they were pretty brutal about it. And their ideas of what considered vice and virtue are a little strange. Anyway, clearly... Peter doesn't want the believers in the churches with this letter is being read doing anything that would unnecessarily put them in danger from the government. That's a common theme in the New Testament. Romans 12, 18, Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Hebrews 12, 14 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Why? Peter says that it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So what were these foolish people saying? Probably something like the crowd in Ephesus was shouting, right? They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. Early Christians were also accused of cannibalism because they ate the body and blood of Jesus. They were accused of incest because they married their brothers and sisters, right? Because we're all brothers and sisters here, and then people marry each other, and therefore, get the idea? Accused of all kinds of things. How do you diffuse the accusation that you follow another king? You show that you're not trying to destabilize a government or subvert society. You submit to the authority structures in society. You actually conform, at least in public. I've spent, I'm going to speak specifically to Westerners here, Um, I've spent 18 years living in Asia, three different countries, and I've noticed an unfortunate trait amongst Westerners living in non-Western countries. We often have the idea that we can pick and choose which aspects of local law we can comply with and which aspects we can get away with ignoring because we're foreigners from powerful countries. I've seen it in Pakistan, I've seen it in Afghanistan, and I've seen it here. But Peter says, because we are outsiders, both religiously and politically, we should work all the harder to obey the rules. Even if we think they're stupid or petty or inconvenient, maybe especially if we think they're stupid, stupid or petty or inconvenient. Why? For the sake of the gospel. That's a principle, okay? What does it look like in practice? Well, Peter gives us four different categories of people that this principle of submission to the structures of society, what it looks like in their relationships. Free people, slaves, wives, and husbands. Verse 16 reads literally, as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as slaves of God. It says free people because it's a modern translation. It probably actually means free men in this case. Even if women were from the free classes, most of them were still bound to a man, either their father or their their husband. And Peter actually spends least time on these. And he says to them the same thing as Paul says. You're free, but don't abuse your freedom. That's what we just learned in Corinthians, right? Earlier on this year. You're actually God's slave. And we like to talk about ourselves as God's children, but Paul's favorite way to refer to himself in Scripture is God's slave. And it seems to be the highest 
compliment he can give to anybody on those lists at the end of his letters is he calls people God's slave. So just, that's just an aside. Then there's four short commands. He says, honor everyone. He says respect, but honor everyone. Uh, as opposed to honoring those above you and despising those below you, which would have been the norm. Because, you know, Proverbs 14.21 says, it's a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed are those who are kind to the needy. So everybody, irrespective of their social status, their job, their color, their religion, their nationality, is made in the image of God and worthy of honor. That in itself is a radical idea. Right there. Then he says, love the family of believers. Yep, you don't, you don't get to choose your relatives. If someone's a believer, they're your brother or sister. Live with it. Then he says, fear God. That doesn't mean be terrified of him. It just means have a proper level of awe and respect for who it is you're talking to when you're praying. And then, just in case you missed it the first time, he says again, honor the emperor. And that's actually pretty amazing. One writer puts it this way. Christ was crucified by the power of Rome, as he had foretold he would be. St. Peter and St. Paul, as they also foreknew, were martyred by Rome, and yet they preached submission to Rome. Now, why would they do that? If the state cracks down on the church because it views it as a threat to their power, then the gospel is hindered. And it's clear that both of them were concerned that the gospel wouldn't be hindered. Now, that doesn't mean that we totally stop, you know, if it, if it suddenly becomes legal to be a, illegal to be a Christian, that doesn't mean that we stop meeting together. That's an area where you have to make no, It's better that I obey God than men at that point. But it does mean that we do everything in our power to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Peter actually spends a lot more time on slaves than he does on free people. He talks about slaves being subject to their masters in reverent fear. That's probably fear of God rather than fear of their masters. It's the same word he just used talking about fear of God. People will sometimes argue the Bible supports slavery. And they'll point to this text and others to say that Peter and Paul both turned a blind eye to the horrors of slavery. But Peter seems quite aware that many slaves suffered unjustly under their masters. But his response is not to stir up a slave revolt. Slave revolts never succeeded anyway. Instead, he points to Jesus and basically says, when you suffer unjustly, you're walking the same path as Jesus did. Respond the same way he did. That may sound like a cop-out to some of us. But you have to remember, the gospel is already a deeply subversive message. It says that everybody is equally valuable in God's sight. Man, woman, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. In a society where everybody had a specific place and role in society, and their value was based on that, and they were expected to stay in that place, the message of the gospel is already radical enough to make the authorities suspicious. And over time, it did make a difference. In the early church, 
positions of spiritual authority were held by women and by slaves. That was unthinkable. And eventually, it resulted in Christian medieval Europe, which for all of its flaws, was the first civilization in human history that was not dependent upon slavery. By the middle of, med- middle, by the, middle of the medieval period, it had been pretty much wiped out until it reappeared somehow or other along with the Enlightenment of the 18th century. So anyway, coming back to Peter's audience, suffering in silence when you're being unjustly punished was also just good advice to slaves to stay alive because masters had the power of life and death over their slaves. The gospel has always been good news to the powerless. In the first century, Slaves and women made up a large percentage of the church. In the American South, the gospel brought dignity and value to slaves living under an evil system. So much so that to this very day, the church is the strongest institution in black American society. In Afghanistan today, the bulk of the church is made up from people from the Shia Hazara minority, who are pretty much at the bottom of the social scale. Again and again, the story of Jesus' suffering has resonated with those who suffer and has given them hope and dignity. No wonder the powers that be were worried about Christianity. Next group, Peter speaks to his wives. Remember, he wants to diffuse accusations that Christians are anarchists. One of the things that anarchists do is they dismantle the family structure. He says, in the same way, in what same way? In reverent fear of God, because we only sub- we submit to people, we are free to people because we first submit to God, right? So that's what frees us, is we're submitted to God. Peter talks about wives being subject to their own husbands. That little word own is important there, because as Mark was saying a few weeks, a month or so ago in Corinthians, um, the word for man and husband is the same word in Greek. The word for woman and wife is the same word in Greek. So he's talking about relationships within the family here, not between men and women in general. In fact, I think almost every place in the New Testament where this is addressed is better interpreted as being relationships within the family rather than relationships in the church or society in general. He's saying that wives should show respect to their husbands. Once again, in first century society, women on their own were seen as a threat to social order. Peter doesn't necessarily agree with that, but he doesn't want the church to get a bad reputation in the community because wives are disrespecting their husbands. Now, I know a number of strong women leaders. They're pastors, they're international speakers, they're professors in seminaries, they're leaders. And in that realm, they act Appropriately, I have never seen them treat their husbands with anything but respect in their personal relationships. Those are two different areas, two different um, sets of relationships. And then finally, we get to the husbands who, like the free men at the beginning, they just get a few words. Actually, they're probably the same people because only free people could get married. Slaves could live together, but they couldn't get married. So Peter's word to the husbands is to honor their wives. It's the same word that's used when he talks about honoring the emperor. 
not despite the fact that she's in the weaker position, which would have been the normal expectation, but because she's in the weaker position. That's what Paul says, that's what James says. You honor those whom the society sees as lesser. After all, as he says, we are all co-heirs of Christ, men, women, slaves, free, Gentile. We are all equal in God's sight. So even as you respect the cultural values of the place where God has placed you, don't forget the radical message of the gospel. That's a tension that we have to live in as foreigners and aliens. A friend of mine has written that early Christians lived in two worlds. Within the church community, they were radically egalitarian. Women and slaves were on an equal footing with the rich and the powerful. Then, when they left their meetings, they had to be careful to act in ways that were appropriate to the culture for the sake of the gospel. We experienced that working with Afghans. Men and women who were in the same Bible study group and met together in each other's homes would walk past each other in the street and not acknowledge one another. Many Afghans already thought that Christians were immoral. So unrelated men and women talking to each other on the street would only reinforce that idea. So within our own groups, we were, we, we were open and honest and free with one another. On the street, we didn't even acknowledge one another for the sake of the gospel. So what do we do with all this? Well, let's start with the husbands and work backwards. Um, husbands, there's a direct, direct command here, honor your wives. Because Peter's final word in this passage isn't about submission. It's about honoring. <laughs> honor your wives. So if you're a husband and you think this passage gives you the right to lord it over your wife, you've missed the whole point. Okay? Honor your wife. Wives, honor your husbands. It's actually a serious thing. I have seen men destroyed by wives who demeaned and belittled them, especially in front of the children. See, when it comes, Meryl and I have a fair amount of experience with abusive relationships. Uh, when it comes to abusive relationships, um, men tend to be physically abusive, but women tend to be emotionally abusive. Um, one guy we knew took his own life as a result. So wives, your husband needs your respect. Honor your husband. As far as I know, we don't have any slaves here. <laughs> I hope not. Um, but we do have people in this congregation who work long hours for little pay for employers who control a large part of their lives. And Peter would remind you that Jesus also suffered at, those, at the hands of those in power and to realize that when you suffer for doing good, you're walking in Jesus' footstep, footsteps. And let's all of us, let's all of us respect the government authorities over us, especially for people like me, Westerners from powerful countries. Let's not think we can pick and choose parts of Turkish law we can obey. This is a tough passage. 
right? But as I said at the beginning, it's less about submission than it is about mission. Peter's point is that we don't give any unnecessary offense to those around us. If people are going to be offended, let them be offended by the cross, not by our behavior. Okay? And let us be a community of people whose lives so speak of the grace that we found in Christ that our neighbors are drawn to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that, yeah, that you use us. That's just amazing. That you don't have any other plans. This is it. We're it. That you've chosen to present yourself and your people and use us to glorify your name. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to walk that line between living out the radical freedom we have in you and respecting the culture and laws of the place where you've placed us. That people might see you, Lord, in us and glorify you and be drawn to you and be saved. In your name we pray. Amen.